Hey, welcome to the Neighbors Church podcast. For all of quarter one, all the way through Easter, we are in an in-depth study through the back half of the Gospel of John on the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. For many, the cross sits on the periphery of their minds and lives, but we are persuaded that the cross must be front and center for both our belief and the formation of our behavior as followers of Jesus. We're praying for you. Hope you learn a lot. Enjoy. If you need anything, reach out to info at sdneighbors.church. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, and it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the world has gone after him. Praise be to God. Do you guys like my, uh, my anime stickers? Okay. <clears throat> Well, good morning, everybody. Again, my name is David Wade. As uh, they shared, it's such an honor and privilege to be here with you guys today. Um, if I'm a little slow, I just feel like I got, you guys got me all caught up in the spirit during worship. Like, I don't know what was, I haven't felt this way in a long time. So I came with the teaching, but we'll see. You know, I might just start talking. Um, but I'm an embedded church planner at Park Hill, which I'll share more about in a second. Uh, I've had the privilege to get to know Dan a little bit, Alexis as well, but maybe a little bit more Dan over the last several months through this uh, cohort we're part of. And you guys are truly blessed. Uh, he's like a really fit Santa Claus. You know what I mean? Like he has all the joy of Santa just wrapped in like a CrossFit body. You know what I mean? Like it's just, it's, it's amazing. He'll, he'll love that, uh, I'm sure. Um, but man, I could just tell just through the worship, through the prayer that is sown in this space and, and just throughout the week, like you guys are a really special community. Um, and so I'm just really blessed to be a part of this morning with you guys today. So I'm going to be a church planner at Park Hill with my wife, Candice. We have two little kids. Uh, they couldn't make it today. Um, what that means is we, like neighbors, are here with the, with the hope of planning a church in San Diego in the next few years. Uh, probably, yes, well, I won't get into specifics yet. They can't pin me down. You never know. Uh, but I also lead the Race and Belonging Cohort. Uh, which is a basically group of people at Park Hill that are trying to figure out how to live out the multi-ethnic kingdom of God in our church in a way that uh, transforms our church and blesses our city, uh, that blesses our city and brings God's multi-ethnic kingdom to pass. Now, I'm from a small, I'm not from San Diego, I'm from a small Rust Belt town uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, which is kind of like poor, a lot of drugs, a lot of violence, where everything was just like black and white, right? Like, so I'm biracial, I'm half black, half white, and where I grew up, race was a really big deal. Even in my own family, uh, so my mom is white, and she was like disowned at one point for dating black people. Uh, and so I didn't end up meeting my, my pap, my mom's dad, until I was 10 years old uh, because they just, he didn't talk to her because she dated blacks. And so uh, I was at a football game, and I was playing a different team that he was coaching. 
And my mom said, hey, come here to the sidelines. And uh, she said, hey, this is your pap, Nick. And so we shook hands. <laughs> and that was the first time I met him. I was 10 years old. Uh, and God has done some cool things in that story, which I'll share in a little bit. But, but it's, just, it's crazy. It's easy to have identity issues when you don't know where you fit in, even in your own family, right? Like when you don't know uh, your own culture, when you don't know your history, when you don't know your story. Stories matter. Uh, I am a writer. I'm a creative writer by trade. I love stories. I love the narrative uh, elements and the literary elements of scripture. I actually got saved in my college years between freshman and sophomore year uh, through reading the big story of God, right? It was just like through reading the gospel and God's story just captured my heart in a way that hadn't, uh, I hadn't heard it before. I was just like, oh, this Jesus is what I need, right? It's not more money, more education, more whatever. It's like this, this guy, Jesus. And I began to see how God was weaving a story all throughout human history that captured my heart. And one of the threads of that story that I've become really interested in is this thread of identity and family and ethnicity that God's been weaving throughout human history. That he's trying to weave all these broken uh, cultures and all these disparate peoples into one new family united in and around him. And once you begin to see the story of God weaving all humans together into a new family, it's kind of hard to unsee that story. See, the world is, is really broken, right? That's not news this morning. But one of the ways it's broken is like in the area of identity specifically. Uh, our culture is in a huge identity crisis right now. Uh, whether it's through uh, cultural differences that keep us apart, whether it's through racial and ethnic like division, and I don't know how to trust these people, or this group broke, hurt my people in the past, and I can't feel connected to them in a way. Whether it's gender division, whether it's national conflict, in which identities are like, I mean, a big thing that's happening in uh, Russia and Ukraine right now, right, is like, uh, what is the identity of Russia? I want to get back to our glory of the old days, and I want to subsume these people into us so that we can be great again. Whether it's sex confusion, whatever it is, it seems that the size of our tribes, however we define them, seem to constantly be shrinking as the number of our enemies, as those that we define as the other continue to grow. Yet I am super convinced that the church is God's solution, right? We're the ones, us in this room and with our brothers and sisters around the world that are called to demonstrate true unity and diversity, which is only possible around the person of Jesus because of what he did on the cross. See, Jesus doesn't erase our cultures or families of origin, nor does he magnify and lift one culture up above another. His answer to this identity crisis is that we become a new family, but it's a special kind of family in Christ. And through a long process of discipleship and becoming like Jesus, together we become this cross-shaped community that can draw all people to him as we show the world who he really is. So from my understanding, you guys have been in a series on atonement and sin as we lead up to, to Easter, right? You've covered atonement and sacrifice, atonement and participation, atonement and victory. But as we move toward Easter, I want to really focus on this idea of atonement as oneness. Atonement as oneness or at oneness. Now, this might be review to you guys, but the Latin word literally means to be made at one with another, right? Atonement. At one, you see? It's like one of those preachery things, but it's real. It actually works this time in the Latin. It's to be made one together with someone you were formerly broken or had a broken relationship with. Now, this is like fundamental to the atoning work of Christ on the cross. He makes us at one with God again where we were broken. He restores us to right relationship with our maker in such a way that removes any hindrance of sin or separation from intimacy, right? We now have unadulterated access to intimacy with our Father. 
Uh, We get to walk with God in the garden again in the cool of the day. But the crazy thing is that through the cross, it's even better, right? Through the cross, we get a level of intimacy that we didn't have with the first humans because this time we're, we're drawn into the mysterious, eternal, love-saturated life of Father, Son, and Spirit. We get to become at one with God in a way that is unprecedented in human history. And Jesus kept no secret that this is what he came to earth to do. Uh, let's look at John 17, 20 through 23. Jesus says, this is Jesus right before, in the next chapter, he's going to go to the cross. In the next chapter, John 18, he's going to be betrayed and go and get, you know, Pontius Pilate, all that stuff. Uh, Crucify, crucify. And in this chapter, he's actually just praying for his disciples. He knows he's about to leave. And so he's praying to the Father on behalf of those who follow him, of those who put their trust in him. And he says, I ask not only on behalf of these, like Peter, James, Thomas, but also on behalf of all those who will believe in me through their word. So that's you and me. Jesus is praying for us in the moment before he goes to the cross that they may all be what? One. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them so that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become completely one. Now, this is one of the most powerful passages in scriptures. I could preach on this. It's one of my favorites. I could preach on this for a long time. But briefly today, Jesus, he's praying for his disciples. He opens it up to us, to the church that is to come. And his prayer has two main parts. He says, first, uh, I want the church, I want those who follow me and love me and trust me, I want them to be inside of me the same way that I'm inside of you. I want them to be inside this love relationship that we Father, Son, and Spirit have in a way that like they are in me, uh, I am in them through the Spirit of God, that we're just one and inseparable, that we're experiencing the love saturation that has been since before time started. That's what I want for my church and my people. That's a crazy sentence, right? That we would be literally inside of God. Like, what does that even mean? That we would inhabit his love and his love would inhabit us. But the second part is also just ridiculously crazy because then Jesus goes on to pray that those who follow him would be one with one another in the same way that he is one with God, right? That you guys in this room, in your community groups, that we would be one with one another in a way that is inseparable, that we would be one with one another that is in a, like, in this sort of indistinguishable love, right? Where like Gabe is still Gabe and Alexis is still Alexis, but there's something about the way we're related to one another that is just like so intimate, so connected, so tight-knit and special that it reminds people of the very nature of God. That it reminds people of the very love relationship that God has within itself, Father, Son, and Spirit. Right? The cross doesn't only take away our sins and give us Jesus' righteousness. It does that, and we're thankful for it. But through the cross, the triune God restores us to his image, which is Father, Son, and Spirit, loving one another selflessly forever. And now we get to be the community, the new family that mirrors that love to the world by the way that we love one another. We get to pull God's reality into this one on earth as it is in heaven, right? We get to participate in the greatest miracle known to man and be a witness to a watching world of God's nature. I mean, what did Jesus say? How how is the world going to know that we're his disciples? By the way that we what? 
the way we love one another, right? That's the whole thing. One scholar put it like this. She said that Jesus actually risked his reputation on the way that we love one another. That Jesus staked his claim for those who don't know him by the way that we represent this loving relationship that God has with each other. That's huge. And so what I want to say is that this image of God, the family that Jesus died to give birth to, is so beautiful and it's so holy, but a question emerges. Who belongs in that family, right? Is it just the first century Jews and Peter, James, and John and all those people or people who become like them? I mean, that was a real question for Jesus' first followers. They're trying to figure out who fits into this new family of God. And it lasted throughout the early church. Paul deals with that in a lot of his letters. But we don't deal with that same question anymore in that way. The, the context has changed, but we still have to answer, who is this family for? Who belongs together in a way that's inseparable love? Is it former enemies? Is it just the people I like to go to the coffee shop with? Is it people who like hip-hop or folk music? Or is it white people? Like, who is, who is in this family of togetherness? That's a real question. Is it uh, just Ukrainians? Is it just Russians? Is it Ukrainians and Russians together? Right? This is the question that we have to answer today. And a huge part of Jesus' atoning work, and this is that next slide, and it's so overlooked, but Jesus' atoning work actually makes the new family that is at one with God and one another a family of diverse ethnic and cultural backgrounds united around the risen king, right? This isn't like an addition to the gospel. This is central to the gospel. This is central to what Jesus came here to do. It's a story of true inclusion, the only story that solves our identity crisis by honoring our diversity while uniting us around the absolute fact of Jesus' resurrection and authority as the risen king, okay? This is the fundamental story of reality present in the gospel that we need to uh, wrap our minds around this morning, and it's not a new story either. I feel like it's so easy in our culture uh, where um, because of the last five, six years or whatever, to think of the conversations around race and ethnicity and, and becoming one together across these dividing lines as uh, a new conversation. But it's like the story that God was writing since the beginning, right? Uh, God actually called Abraham out of his father's lands, away from his father's people and gods, in order to start a new family that was going to bless all the nations through him. A people that were not a people now becoming one around the presence of God. And then Abraham's grandson, Jacob, he actually got a foretaste of that, right? Jacob was the one who uh, lost, you know, Joseph and Benjamin, and they were in Egypt and all that good stuff, if you know your Bibles. But Joseph, we don't think about this, he had two half-Egyptian sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, that Jacob got to bless into the family of God, into the covenant community of God's special chosen people. And he actually said when he did that, this is the blessing that my grandfather talked about. This is what God was doing. I get to see the first fruits of it living out now. Moses got to see it thicken, right? He got to see it bubble and pop whenever he led a mixed multitude out of Egypt to be delivered by God. It wasn't just the Jews that he led out of Egypt. The Bible says a mixed multitude went with him. We don't know who they were. They were likely uh, slaves of other ethnicities that went with them, but they got to go with God's chosen people to be delivered from human oppression and empire and all the evil stuff that Pharaoh was doing and go through the Red Sea with them on that journey that God was taking them as a foreshadow of the deliverance to come. And then the prophet Isaiah, speaking of the coming Messiah who would fulfill this once and for all, put it like this. Yahweh says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant, Israel, to raise up the tribes of Jacob alone. Right? It's too small that my chosen people would only restore and redeem my chosen people. 
and to bring back the preserved of Israel. He said, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. God's heart is to bring his salvation to the ends of the earth. It's not just limited to one family or tribe or people. And so Israel gets a foretaste of this miracle throughout their history, but they also fail to make good on God's promise again and again and again until Jesus. Oh, guys, I have to tell you something. If we don't say amen, man, we're going to be here. And I, have, we're, and I have a meeting later, so we're going to be here. I'm going to have to postpone the meeting because I'll just keep saying the same thing over and over again. So I need some nods and amen and smiles. You know, I need to know that we're all, that we're tracking together and... Uh, yeah, okay, so uh, God's promise time again. See, Jesus embodies Israel and God and humanity, and he brings it all together through his sacrifice to make good on the promise. He combines God's covenant faithfulness with God's covenant purpose to save the world through Israel. And now all the nations of the world have access to the faithful God as one new family. So that's the theology, like beginning stuff about atonement, right? But what does it boil down to? Why does it matter? What's the point? It's simply this, that God's heart has always been to draw all people into one family, right? It's not a new story. God's heart has always, that's been a desire of his since the beginning of the world. If he chose us before the foundation of the world, if he knew we would sin and mess it up and become so divided and conflicted against one another and brother would lift up arm against brother, and yet he still let it happen, then this thing about uniting us together in our different disparate ethnicities and nations was in his heart from the very beginning. Regardless of where we come from, we all get to reflect him in beautiful, diverse ways together in unity around the person of Jesus. Why is this important on Palm Sunday? Because in John's gospel that we're about to read, we get to see that Jesus' multi-ethnic kingdom, the family that he was trying to create, was actually a marker of the fact that Jesus is Lord. Jesus views this stuff that I'm talking about, the union between these different nations, tribes, and tongues, as a marker of it's, of it's time for me to go to the cross so I can finish the work that the Father started. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to uh, John chapter 12. And we're going to just spend the rest of the time this morning sort of walking through the truth in this passage. Just a little bit of background while you get there. So Jesus, he's just raised Lazarus up from the dead. Uh, Lazarus was his good friend, and he raised him up from the dead, and he declares, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the only way to true life and life eternal. And because of this miracle, people from the surrounding villages, they're just like flocking to Jesus in mass, right? They're like, oh, this is the one. We've, we've heard of his miracles, but now we've seen it for ourselves. He is Messiah. And they're believing in him because of what he did. And so many people are flocking to Jesus that the Pharisees, who were the kind of religious leaders at the time, they actually started to plot to kill Jesus because they thought that all the, the pop, like the popular movement, all the people are coming to Jesus and it's going to force Rome to like put us down and like kill us. They, they were scared that a revolt was going to happen, that Jesus was going to like lead some sort of big protest and then Caesar was going to be like, all right, shut it down, kill all the Jews. So they were like, we have to get rid of Jesus in order to preserve the peace that we have now, right? They'd rather preserve the peace that they had under a foreign evil emperor than to accept and welcome the king that they've been waiting for their whole lives. Uh, they, they just didn't understand. They didn't understand what was going to happen. And Jesus knows this, but he returns to the city anyways. He knows if he returns to Jerusalem, it might be the last trip that he ever makes. But he risked his life for love. 
Okay, and then uh, one more note. This takes place a week before Passover, which Easter celebrates, where Jesus, or excuse me, where the Jews commemorate their deliverance from Egypt, right? This is the whole thing that they orient their, their year around is Passover, this time of celebrating the fact that God delivered us from an evil, oppressive emperor so that we could be free. And so when Jesus is coming to the city, uh, John wants us to hear echoes here in this story that they're expecting a similar deliverance as God worked for their ancient ancestors in the land of Egypt. They're looking at Jesus as he comes to the city, the one who's raising people from the dead as the one who would deliver them from this evil Roman emperor once and for all, the same way that the God delivered their ancestors from Pharaoh. They expected a warrior king. Somebody to come and teach them how to fight. You guys have ever, bless you, you guys ever watch The Chosen? Anybody here watch The Chosen? Uh, it's like one of my favorite characters is like Big James, you know, the tall dude. And he's like, all right, Jesus, this is good. We're healing people. Like, when do we get to bring out our swords? You know what I mean? Like, that's what they're like right now. They're ready to go to war and they still don't understand because they expected a warrior king. But, but you and I know that Christ came as a lamb. Uh, he came as a sacrificial lamb. And so this whole chapter brings to mind a question. And that question is, who are we worshiping really? Who do we really worship when we worship Jesus? Are we worship, worshiping him as he is, or are we worshiping an image of Jesus that we've created? Are, are we worshiping an ideal that we're projecting on to Jesus, that he does what we want to do, and that's what makes him worthy? Right? Do we have expectations of how he has to move in order to be God, or are we just expecting that because he is who he says he is, everything's going to be good? Because he's faithful, I can expect that it'll be better than I can ask, think, or imagine. Right, Because if you come to God with expectations, you have to fit God into a box, you're always going to be let down. He's always exploding our boxes. But if you come hungry, if you come just like, okay, God, I know you're good, you'll, you'll never be let down. He'll always be found faithful. All right, so with that in mind, let's, uh, let's start reading the first part of John. John 12, 12 through 23, or excuse me, 13. The next day, the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, which means save us. I beg you, save us, or we are saved. Blessed is the one who come in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. So I don't know about you guys. I didn't grow up in California with palm trees all around. I grew up uh, on the East Coast. We had, you know, you guys are laughing, but we, our leaves change colors at least. They don't change colors here. <laughs> I had that, like, Drake October swag in the fall, you know, walk. Okay, um, <laughs> The, I didn't grow up with palms all around me. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but every Palm Sunday at the Black Baptist Church I grew up in, my uncle, he was a deacon there, and uh, they would give the little palm leaves and make them into the shape of a cross. Did anybody grow up in a church culture like that? Uh, yeah, everybody would get one when you walked in the door, and you know, old ladies would put them on their hats, and my mom would always hang it in the car, like on the mirror. And I thought it was cool. I didn't know what it was for, though, right? I was like, it was a nice, and they kind of faded and turned colors like after a week from sitting in the sun, you know? Uh, that's what I thought it was. It was like a nice thing to celebrate. But actually, palm leaves were a big symbol of victory in the ancient Mediterranean context that Jesus and John grew up in. They were a symbol of victory. You guys can throw that uh, coin image up. So this image, if you can't really tell, but, but it's like a palm tree right there. This is from uh, like the second century. It's from a revolt that the, that the Jews made, the Bar Kokhba revolt, uh, against the Roman emperor. And they were successful for a few years, and so they printed their own money. They were like, get rid of this money with Caesar's face on it. We want money with a palm tree on it. Why? because it symbolizes victory from oppressors. See, uh, for the Jews, this was a very familiar symbol. A few hundred years before Jesus, when they were under a different emperor, the Greek 
uh, emperor, the Seleucid Empire. Uh, they were under oppression, and then they were led to victory again by this man named Simon Maccabeus, and they raised up the palm leaves for him, and it was a, a tradition that shaped their expectations. And then around the time of John's uh, gospel being written, there had been a few other Jewish revolts against Rome that had failed, and in those revolts, they also printed money with palm leaves on it to show that uh, we are victorious, we have overthrown our political oppressors, and now we have our own political independence, right? These palm leaves, they shape the tradition of the people's hope for a royal national liberator, Okay, and it's actually interesting, in all four Gospels, uh, this is the only one where palms are mentioned as palms. The other ones say branches or, tr or leaves from trees, but this is the one where palms are specifically mentioned because John wants to get a point across to his audience, right? Uh, it's the tradition that shaped them. See, Hosanna literally means save us, and we rightly cry that out today. God, you saved us. You will save us. We will always be saved, and we can trust you. But in this context, the gathered crowd had their hope in the wrong place. They had a different image of Messiah. Their Hosanna was not for an eternal savior, but for a political savior, right? That's what their palms and praise signified. In other words, these folks, they weren't really trying to have a worship session like we just had and say, Jesus is here, let's worship the king. They're like, no, Jesus is here, let's storm the capital. You know what I mean? Like, oh, it's go time, it's game time, baby. Uh, they had their signs ready to go. And so we have to ask, does Jesus stand ready to accept this role? Right? Has he come to be the explicit uh, you know, liberator of the oppressed Roman people and them alone from their, or excuse me, the oppressed Jewish people and them alone from the Roman oppressors? Or is he continuing God's story of making one new family out of all the broken cultures on earth? Let's read on. Uh, John 12, 14 through 19. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, they're referring to a prophecy. Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written of him and been done to him. Uh, next slide. For I, oh, there should be a little bit more there. I'll just keep reading it. Uh, his disciples not understand these things, yes. So the crowd that had been with him when they called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify. It was also because they heard that he had performed this sign that the crowd went out to meet him. The Pharisees then said to one another, you see, you can do nothing. We can't do anything to stop this guy. The whole world is going after him. Okay? So this passage begins to answer our question, and it does it through two prophecies, one ancient and one uh, unintentional or unintended. Now, the first comes from this reference in verses 14 and 15 to the Old Testament, to Zechariah chapter 9. There's tons of stuff in Zechariah 9 about God delivering Israel from their enemies and their oppressors and God protecting them as his covenant people. But the two most important things in this passage for us today are, number one, uh, in the Old Testament version, it says that, uh, look, your king has come riding or mounted on a donkey. But in John's gospel in the Greek, it says he comes sitting. And that's a big, big difference because it signifies peace instead of military might. Uh, it signifies that I'm not coming here to wage war, but the war has actually already been won, right? I'm coming in as a victorious king through the city gates, not somebody who's ready to rally the troops and get them fired up for battle. And so by quoting this prophecy, uh, which, 
you know, it, it, it messes up the expectation. It subverts the expectation of the Jews reading John's words. And then the second thing that's important for us, if we, if we were to keep reading uh, in Zechariah chapter 9, uh, we would scroll down in our minds like a good Pharisee or Jewish Bible scholar of the day would, hearing these words referenced, we'd find a major clue into Jesus' purpose and John's meaning behind giving us this scene. Let's look at Zechariah 9 chapter 13. So this is just a short, a few short verses after what was shared in that prophecy. For I've bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim its arrow. So these are tribes of Israel. I'm using them as weapons of war. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, so Israel, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. And so if you keep reading this prophecy, in its original context, it signified military violence against all of Israel's enemies, including Greece, right? We already have the palm leaves that signify, uh, oh, God delivered us from Greece in the past. And so now they're reading John's words. They're hearing Jesus talk and they're like, oh, this is it. Like, I know what this means. You're going to destroy our enemies and deliver us just like you did back then. You're going you're gonna to set us free once and for all, just like you have for every other emperor and empire in the past, everything that has come against your people, your chosen people, Israel, you're going to destroy those things, cast them into the Red Sea and set us free to keep walking with you. We're going to be the victors now, right? We're going to be the ones in charge. They're going to lose the power, and we're going to gain the power by the way that, we, uh, that you wield us as a sword against them. But the Bible says they didn't understand the kind of war that Jesus was waging. They didn't understand that he was sitting instead of riding, and that the only thing he came to break was his own body to make us whole. It wasn't until he had been glorified, which means until he had been crucified, John says. That's when they understood. And so if Jesus is not going to destroy Israel's physical enemies, then what did he come to do? Well, Jesus' enemies, in this context, the Pharisees actually understood that better than his disciples and the crowds did. See, the crowds kept testifying about their version of Messiah, telling everyone at the festival that the king is here, get ready, it's go time. But in 1219, the Pharisees offered this unintentional, ironic prophecy. They said, look, there's nothing we can do to stop him. The whole world is chasing after him. And in this next section, we get to see the prophecy actually come to pass. Let's look at 12 through 20, or excuse me, yeah, 12, 20 through 23. Now, among those who went up to worship at the festival were some what? Oh, man, this is so good if you're a writer, you know, if you like literary, just like coalescence, you know? Greeks, three times in this passage already. What happened? Okay. Uh, now, among those who went up to worship at the festival were some they came to Philip because he had a Greek-sounding name who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. He's like, uh, is this allowed? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Andrew, you've known him for longer. <laughs> let, me go get, let me go get somebody else. <laughs> Alexis, <laughs> uh, somebody at the door. <laughs> All right. So Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew's like, I don't know, doc. So Andrew and Philip, they both went and told Jesus together. And Jesus answered them, and he said, oh, now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Oh, there's some Greeks here to see me? My time has come. See, Jesus associates the time for glorification, the time when he's going to be seen as he truly is, as the divine God who is one with the Father and the Spirit, that time that we're going to see him lifted up and high and ascended and glowing with a light that just burns and you can't look at it, you can't bear to see it, the one who you enter his presence and his eyes are fire and his hair is like wool and his feet are bronze. He's like, when they see me like that, it's time for me to be that Jesus? And this is the marker of it. 
that some Greeks are here to come see me. Now, some scholars, they think maybe these Greeks were like just Jewish, uh, Greek Jewish people who came to worship at the festival. Maybe, but the fact that they're called Greeks in the text means that they were still seen as outsiders and others to the Jewish people. This could seem coincidental if we don't know our Hebrew Bible, but I just gave you like a 20-minute lesson, you know? We just read that the people view Greeks as a symbolic enemy to be overcome and other to be destroyed so that they can be set free. But Jesus says some Greeks want to come see me. They, they want to be part of what I'm doing. They want to know if there's room in my kingdom and in my family for them. Andrew, Philip, heaven, heaven's here, man. This is heaven breaking into earth right now. It's time, dude. It's time for me to complete the mission that my father has given me. See, Jesus hasn't come to destroy Greeks or Romans or whoever, not even Russians or what, you know, if you're Ukraine, I mean, think about how this message really doesn't affect us sometimes as Americans who have been a world superpower for a long time. But imagine if I was preaching this message right now in a church in underground in Ukraine and said, God didn't come to destroy Russia. It hits different, huh? Okay, so Jesus hasn't come to destroy the oppressors. He came to welcome them into relationship with him as Messiah. And for the Jews, these Gentile or unclean oppressors, doubly damned for being both the wrong ethnicity and for attacking God's people, are actually welcomed home as sons and daughters. They're welcomed into the family as one with us. So Jesus interprets this visit by the Greeks as the moment his multi-ethnic kingdom, his new family, is inaugurated. But he's not leading Israel in a war to dominate them and oppress them the way that it maybe worked in the Old Testament. Uh, he's not going to destroy these old powerful nations and make us the powerful nation now. He's not going to conquer or coerce. He's not here to lift one group up above another. He actually comes to die to make us one, right? That's the atonement piece. He, he comes to die so that we could be one with him and one with one another. And here's the thing this morning, beloved, and I always want to say beloved when I talk to churches. This makes me feel so like a preacher. Um, if we want to see the multi-ethnic, intercultural, truly equal kingdom of God, the, the new family, if we want to see that come to pass, if we want the church to be a witness to the world in the area of diverse unity across ethnic and gender and any other identity lines, you guys in for that, right? Then we have to die too. Mm. his body was broken in order to make this happen. He said, if you're going to follow me, you need to live a cross-shaped life. You need to follow me, not just in the good stuff, but to the cross as well. See, we need to die too to make this possible. Uh, everybody in this room has someone we view as incompatible with God's family whether it's because their sin's too big or their lifestyle's too perverse or their culture's too broken or their politics are just super whack or uh, we, do, we don't, maybe we don't even know why we like them, right? We don't like them. We don't even know why. We just don't like them. All of us have someone we treat the way that the Jews treated these Greeks. Someone we picture as the folks that God came to judge so that we could be set free, you know? And now don't get me wrong. Nobody gets a pass in the kingdom of God. This is not like, oh, we need to just like, you know, not be soft on sin or something like uh, the, the kingdom of God is the most inclusive and exclusive family in the entire planet and in, in the history of the world, right? All are welcome, but everybody must change. All are welcome through these doors, but nobody leaves the same. 
We all have to uh, lay our lives down in order to be transformed into the image of Christ. We all carry our cross. We all must deny ourselves in order to follow him. But for some of us, it doesn't matter uh, how transformed somebody is, they're still a Greek, right? <laughs> it doesn't matter how much they've given their life to Jesus or how much progress we've seen. It's like, nope, they're still other. They're still too different. Uh, they still can't be welcome here with me. And Jesus, he's about to tell his followers, if you want to be like me, if you want to see my family grow, then you're going to have to die to your ideas of what that family looks like. Let's read on. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. In the same breath, Jesus says, I must die to fulfill this promise, to complete God's story of building and growing a new family out of all the disparate parts. But if anyone follows me, they're going to go where I'm going. They're going to be where I'm at, and that means they're going to be with me right at the cross. See, the path to resurrection, to at-oneness, always leads through the cross. The path to resurrection, to being at one with God and others, always leads through the cross. And if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, we need to actually follow him. And it's costly. This kind of love is sacrificial. Some scholars say it's cross-shaped, right? It's arms wide open, being willing to die for the other. But it's the kind of love that brings the other home, that brings them into family. And what it looks like is actually excluding ourselves from the systems of the world that hold on to bitterness and rejection and distance and separation, right? It might not look like I actually have to die for somebody's sins. Jesus did that once and for all. But if I want people to experience that love, I need to uh, opt out of the world's judgment. I need to opt out of what the world does in this situation. So you need to hate your life, uh, not think of it more highly than you think of Jesus' mission and worth. We need to lay down our will and expectations, especially in this context, when we desire to dominate and even exterminate those who have hurt us. Because sometimes we think that's the only way we'll find true freedom, right? If they went through what I went through, if they're just gone and obliterated. I mean, that's what these Jews felt. If I could only be free from the Greeks or the Romans, if only this group wasn't in power, then all would be well with my soul. But instead of asserting yourself over the other Jesus teaches, you need to lay your life down for them because that's what he did for us. This is super hard. It's, it takes a life to live and a community to make it possible. It's a major paradigm shift for Jesus' audience and for us today. Um, and I, I was thinking of an example to give. And has anybody ever heard of Corey Tenboom? If you've been around church for any number of years, right, you probably have heard of Corey Ten Boom, but her story just came back up to me. For those who don't know, she was a young girl uh, from Holland during World War II, and her and her sister were thrown into concentration camps for hiding Jewish refugees from Nazis. And so then that was the punishment for people who helped out the Jews. They were thrown into the concentration camps beside them. Oh, you want to be one with the other? Bet, you know? Go through what they go through. Her sister actually died in that camp. Um, but she survived. 
And after World War II, she became a great evangelist. And she actually went to Germany as her mission field. And she would bring God's message of forgiveness to the Germans who just lost World War II after all the evil and tragic things that they just did. So she's just speaking to these Germans night and night again. God loves you. You're forgiven. And she said nobody would ever say anything at the end of those meetings. People would just get up and leave, right? But she just did it for years and years and years. But after one talk uh, and one of the crowds that she had, uh, she actually was approached by a man. After everybody's leaving, this guy starts walking towards her and she instantly recognizes him as one of the guards from the camp that she and her sister uh, were tortured at. And he's walking towards her and she says he's wearing a, like a, you know, a suit and a tie, but all she can see is the skull and crossbones and the clipped hat and the, the outfit that he wore as a prison guard. All she can see is her and her sister's naked bodies walking beside him uh, as he's in her, she said her sister's ribs just poking out of her, her skin. She said, that's all I could see when he walked towards me. And so she's so flabbergasted, right? And uh, he comes up to her and he tells her like, oh, hey, I, I hear this message and I appreciate that. Like, he doesn't recognize her, but he knows that she was at the camp because she mentioned it in her talk. And he says, I've, I've become a Christian and I believe that God has forgiven me, but I want to hear it from you. And he stuck out his hand. Um, and she said it was the hardest moment of her entire life. She said, like, felt like time froze and she was just like in her body and her trauma. And uh, she was like, how could I be preaching this message of forgiveness and all I have is coldness and like unforgiveness in my heart to this dude, right? Like she just had nothing to give in that moment. But she remembered, so she, she was running a house for um, people who had been injured in the war and in the concentration camps, like invalids, people who could, were severely disabled from the war and from the, the things they suffered. And she said, in that moment, God reminded her that everybody that she'd seen leave the place and go on to rebuild their lives were people who had uh, forgiven in their hearts what had happened to them. But the people who just remained like catatonic and just unable to go on were the people who nursed their, nursed their bitterness, is what she said. And so she, she prays and she says, I'm going to stick out my hand, God. I have nothing to give and I'm going to trust you to supply the feeling. And she said when their hands touched, she felt the Holy Ghost go up her arms. And she said, these are her words, for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. And I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. This is the atonement, right? It's a literal miracle. I come from a more charismatic background, if you couldn't tell, right? So it's like signs and wonders, healing, and all that stuff. I mean, I believe in it so much, dude. But like, we don't think about the fact that this is a miracle. Like, this is supernatural. Racial reconciliation is supernatural. Ethnicities who were at war with each other for centuries, to look at somebody who like murdered your sister and to be able to give them a hug and say, I'm experiencing God's love right now. That is a miracle of all miracles. And Jesus called to the cross uh, to self-death so that even your enemies might experience your love. I mean, think of Jesus. If you guys like to read, there's a book by this dude, Howard Thurman, who's like a black scholar who like influenced Martin Luther King. But he has a book, Jesus and the Disinherited. And it changed my life because he talks about like just thinking of Jesus, the, psych the psychology of Jesus, right? Um, Jesus grew up a Jew under Roman oppression. Did like some random Roman dude ever smack his mom and he was unable to do anything about it? Maybe. Did he see people get beat and spit on and be forced? Definitely, right? Did he have this history of all oh, the Greeks oppressed us and 100%. 
and yet he still went to the cross for them. He still said, oh, this is the reason why I came, to make us one together. And it's just so opposite the expectations of the crowds and us today. It's just so opposite of what we're used to and what we even desire in our hearts. And so for Jesus, many in the crowds, they actually went on to reject him because they didn't even understand. Like when they started to pick up what he was putting down, they're like, there's no way this guy's the Messiah. We were wrong, dude. There's no way that we had it right. Even Jesus himself experienced a troubled soul over the weight of what he had to do to make us one. But the new family that he was trying to birth was worth it. Let's look at John 21 really quick here. We're not going to read all of that. Can you actually go to, uh, oh, no, it's perfect. Okay. I'll just read it from here. It's like the second half. Now is the judgment of this world. So Jesus, a voice comes from heaven. A voice of the Father comes and speaks to him. Jesus is troubled. He's anguished. Am I really about to do this? Die for the people who have hurt and abused my people for so long. And he says, he experiences a moment of anguish, but a voice speaks from heaven and says, no, you're on track. I'm going to glorify my name. Uh, and I've glorified it, and I'll glorify it again. It's only the, the third time in the scriptures in uh, the New Testament that the voice from heaven, the Father's voice, speaks audibly in a way that people can hear it, speaks to Jesus to confirm him. The first time was whenever he said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, right? So it's like that kind of moment. And here's what Jesus says in verse 31. Okay, I get it now. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. Who's the ruler of the world? Satan, right? But what did the Jews probably hear? Caesar, right? We don't know, but I imagine if the, the prince of the world, right? He called himself all kinds of names. God, prince, king, whatever. Oh, now is the time. But Jesus is, he's talking about something a little bit different. Now is the time the ruler of the world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up, ascended, yes. On a cross, definitely. I will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. And so here we see Jesus reaffirming his reason for going to the cross to be glorified. We don't know if they're talking about Caesar, but, but what do I want to say? The, the ruler that he was talking about was the great divider. The ruler that he was talking about was the one who sows discord among brothers and the one that keeps us from oneness. The ruler that he was talking about was the one that separates us so that we cannot love each other the way that Jesus loves us, the way that the Trinity is in a self-love cycle. Like that thing, that's what he came to cast out. And so when we are experiencing that thing in our lives, we might need to invite Jesus to go ahead and drive it out again, right? See, okay, Jesus subverts their expectations because when he's lifted up, it's going to be on a cross before it's a throne to defeat not an earthly enemy, but a spiritual one. And in this divine reversal, Jesus, who will be lifted up forever, will what? Draw all people to himself. And so Jesus is talking about lifted up. The crowd starts to question him. They think, oh, this can't be the guy. What are you talking about? And so many didn't believe, the Bible says. Many were following him up until this point. Many of the people who were just singing Hosanna and waving their palm leaves and all that stuff, when he said this, they're like, no, that's not the guy. And the Bible says, why didn't they believe? It's because they loved human glory more than the glory that comes from God. He said some believed and they wouldn't even confess it, but they loved human glory more than the glory that comes from God. They prefer to keep their positions of power or their families of origin, or their culture, or their need to be right, or their understanding of who God loves and what his justice looks like. They'd want to keep all of that rather than denying themselves, excluding themselves from the way the world does it, 
and choosing Jesus and inclusion in his new life. And so as we begin to close, I just want to ask a few questions this morning. I want you to ask these questions to yourself. Uh, See, I like to end sometimes with just letting the Holy Spirit speak some questions and speak to our hearts. And it's for this reason today. I don't want to be like the crowd that hears the voice from heaven and is raising up palm leaves and is saying Hosanna one day, praising him as king and then crying out crucify the next. Because it's this same group of people, right, that a week later are gathered around him when he's lifted up saying, yes, crucify, crucify. That's not him. I don't want to be like that. I want my heart to be pure. I want to see him rightly as he truly is. And in order for that to happen, we have to figure out how willing we are to die to ourselves so that this new life, this at-oneness with one another can be birthed in us. And so here's the questions. Number one, am I following Jesus or is he following me? That'll preach. Right? Is Jesus a tool for my political agenda? Is Jesus uh, just an excuse for me to get whatever I want done in the world and to make people think and act and behave the way that I want them to, to happen? Or am I following Jesus no matter when it doesn't align with what I think? I'm bringing what I align or what I, what I think, I'm bringing it into alignment with what he thinks and teaches. Is that true about me? Is Jesus just a tool for my division or for my dreams and visions and what I want for my life? Or am I laying my life down in order to follow him? Number two, two, is there any group that I exclude? Is there a group that I'm treating like they treated the Greeks? Who in your life are you viewing as incompatible with God's new family? It might not be along color lines, but maybe it is. It might be along class lines, sexuality lines, political lines for sure, right? Who are you treating like they treated the Greeks? Number three, do I only praise God when things go the way that I think they should go? Are you those fickle-hearted individuals just like the crowd, just like me, that turned on him a few days later? That when it's good and it's up and my money's coming in and my wife and relationship is good and the worship is awesome at church and everything is jiving the way it's supposed to be, God is good, he's Lord, amen, amen. But when there's a hard moment and my circumstance changes, I don't know, man, like, I'm about to go to yoga or something. You know what I mean? Like, I need to, I need to try something else out. Maybe not yoga, but you know what I'm saying. Like, yoga's great. God bless yoga. Um, but, but you understand what I'm saying, right? Do I only praise him when things go the way that I think they should? And then lastly, am I willing to die to myself, to my own desires, and on behalf of my enemies? See, the family that's at stake And Jesus taking this risk of staking his reputation on us as the family that loves one another. The future that is surely going to come to pass by the power and grace and miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. Prayerfully, that's going to start right here with us. Right? In San Diego as it is in heaven. That's what your website says. I knew I looked up directions. Um, But that's what we need, right? It starts here with us. This version of heaven, this this, uh, element or aspect of heaven, prayerfully it's going to start in this room by the way that we lay our lives down in order to participate in Jesus' atoning work in this way. Amen? Amen. And so for now, I just want to close with this image. Well, two things, a story and an image, a brief story. One, I told you guys about my grandfather earlier, right? Um, This has been one of the biggest blessings of my life. So I met him when I was 10. And uh, 
hung out with him a few times throughout the year since then, just very randomly. He'd always like give me a handshake and put $20 in it. It's this old school Italian. Yo, he was in the mafia. This isn't recorded, right? Okay. Um, it was. But then he coached women's basketball. It's a weird story. Uh, okay. So in his old age, he's begun to, to wander about God, to wonder about God. And he's, he's since been trying to seek redemption, right? So we talked a little bit. I gave, I, God allowed me to forgive him. And uh, so we just talk. And he didn't talk to my mom still, but I would just talk to him whenever he wanted to talk. And we'd talk about God and I'd pray for him and stuff. And he would cry every time we talked, every time we saw him. And so when we moved out here a few months, a few months ago, um, I get a call from my mom one day. And she's, she, my mom would come to visit me and then so I put some pictures up on Instagram and Facebook because I'm a great son. And, um, and then she gets a call. And she, I get a call from her and she says, David, you'll never believe what happened. I said, what? And she said, I got a call at the grocery store the other day and my dad called me. It was a number I didn't recognize. Um, and she said, I didn't even know his voice. I didn't know who it was. And he starts talking about, uh, he saw the pictures that you posted and how, how beautiful I was and how all that life has given me, like I've never lost my beauty and that you're such a good son and that he's just so proud of what you've become and that the mom that I was, even though he wasn't uh, available and around, and she said they were both crying on the phone for like an hour and he just repented to her for just like not being in her life. And she's just in the grocery store weeping, weeping, weeping. And so then um, they get off the phone and she says, he calls her back because she was going on a trip. And he said, wait, do you have any money to go? And she said, no. And he said, what's your address? Like, he didn't know where she lived. They lived in the same town of 15,000 people my entire life. Didn't know where she lived. He said, what's your address? So she goes home and he meets her. He comes into my mom's house for the first time in like, I'm 31, so like 31 years at least, probably 40. And they just sit on the couch, cry, weep, pray together. He gives her money to go on her trip. And like that restoration I would have never in a thousand years imagined it was possible, right? They like have a relationship now. I would have never, it's just something that I wouldn't have dreamed about. You know what I mean? It was just like, oh, like, it's not even on my grid. But the God that we serve is the God who does more than we can ask, think, or imagine. He does the miraculous, and this is miraculous. This is beautiful. This is the sweet, sweet. he's the God of long stories. And if we let him, he will redeem ours, even these broken places in our lives. So we'll close with one last verse. But do you remember all that stuff about palm leaves and victory that I was talking about earlier? Right? I just, I really, I really beat it. But here's a good reason. The only other time that we see palm leaves in the New Testament is in Revelation chapter 7, also written by John. And here's what the Bible says. Can we put up Revelation 7, 9 through 10? After this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for being here in such a tangible, visceral way this morning. 
thank you for subverting our expectations because what you have is always better than we could dream or imagine in our own strength or in our own plans, our own visions. What you have is always more beautiful than we could imagine or anticipate. Thank you that when we worship you, the image of you that we think you are, you're always willing to just forgive us as we repent and to welcome us home and to remind us that the true vision, this Revelation 7 picture of all nations, tribes, and tongues gathered around the throne of the Lamb, singing in a diverse symphony of harmony where every culture is honored, every ethnicity recognized in sweet, sweet beauty as we sing to you, Lord. That's where all this is going. One new family, united in you alone, made at one with one another. If you've cut our hearts this morning, Lord, I pray that you would teach us how to heal and to grow as we change our minds as we're transformed into your image, Lord. We love you. We bless you. Meet us in this time of worship and communion in Jesus' name. Amen.